might know I'm short, so <laughs> there's that. <clears throat> so today is Monday Thursday. Got a lot of smart people around here. Does anybody know what the word Monday means? Except Dr. Tennant. <laughs> ah, yeah, I didn't either. Um, actually, the word Monday uh, comes from the old Latin in the 13th century, Monday, and please pardon my French, and from the Latin mandatum, or commandment, referring to Christ, the words of Christ, mandatum novum do vobis, or a new commandment I give you, referring to the charge that Jesus gave his disciples in John 13, 34 to 35. And I quote, I give you a new commandment, love each other. Just as I have loved you, so you also must love each other. This is how everyone will know that you are my disciples when you love each other. But what kind of love is this that Jesus commands? At the Passover feast, Jesus demonstrated what he meant in two ways. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, including Peter, his denier, and Judas, his betrayer, and Jesus reframed the meaning of sharing bread and wine. This is my body, which is given for you. This cup is the new covenant by my blood, which is poured out for you. Knowing the hearts of his disciples as Jesus did, could you have washed the feet of those who would deny or betray or abandon you within the next few hours? Would you be willing to have your body broken and your blood spilt on behalf of those who will reject you? This is exactly what Jesus did. Loving others as Christ loved us is easy when everyone plays by the relationship rules to which we all agree. But God knew perfectly well that at some time, someone was bound to behave badly. If we are to love others as Jesus commands, then we must also follow Jesus' example and extend costly interpersonal forgiveness to those same undeserving individuals. To more fully understand our call to forgiveness, please turn with me to Paul's letter to the Colossians. And there's an app for that. So, what characterizes the divine forgiveness that Jesus embodies? In Colossians 1.23, Paul recognizes that divine forgiveness is offered to those who do not deserve it. Paul describes us as being alienated from God and labels us as God's enemies. As a result of our wrongdoing, we are dead. When God forgives, he names the injustice and condemns it. And that makes perfect sense to us. When we are deeply and unjustly wounded by someone, our hearts cry out, for justice. We name the offense as we see it, and we condemn the one who acted against us. We may even have said, 
I will find some way to make you pay for this. A justice gap exists between us and our offender. And unlike God, we fully expect our offenders to pay the price to close the justice gap. However, although the divine injured party names and condemns the injustice, God also takes the initiative to close the justice gap so that relation restoration is made possible. Paul uses two metaphors to describe this aspect of divine forgiveness. The first metaphor is one of rescue and liberation. In Colossians 1.13, Paul writes, God rescued us from the control of darkness and transferred us into the royal domain of the son he loves. He sets us free through the son and forgives our sins. The second metaphor is one of debt cancellation. Paul writes in Colossians 2.13, When you were dead, God made you alive with Christ and forgave all the things you had done wrong. He destroyed the record of debt we owed with its requirements that worked against us. He canceled it by nailing it to the cross. Liberation. Debt cancellation. When unforgiveness controls us, we chew on our memory of the offense like a cow chews her cud over and over again. We are flash frozen in a moment of time as victim and victimizer. We are imprisoned by the past. We need liberation. When unforgiveness controls us, we meticulously keep a ledger of what we believe the wrongdoer owes us. We enter every new or imagined slight into the debt register with compounded interest. We want payment. When we forgive, we are set free from our captivity to the past. When we forgive, we free not only the wrongdoer, but ourselves from the debt we believe the wrongdoer owes us because Jesus has already paid that debt in full. On the cross, Jesus paid the debt of the one who sinned against you and me. On the cross, Jesus dies as the one who is sinned against. On the cross, Jesus represents both victims and victimizers. God not only offers forgiveness to those who do not deserve it by taking the initiative to close the justice gap, by canceling its demands, divine forgiveness desires the highest relationship goal, and that is reconciliation. So return to Colossians 1, 21 and 22. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies with him in your minds, which was shown by your evil actions. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through death to present you before God as a people who are holy, faultless, and without blame. This verse summarizes the plot line of scripture. The biblical narrative tells the story of the divine injured party who repeatedly 
persistently and faithfully pursues those who have betrayed him, not for revenge, retribution, or retaliation, but with the hope of reconciliation, so that those who were formerly God's enemies are now recognized as members of God's redeemed family, holy, faultless, and without blame. Through repentance, we participate in Jesus' death and resurrection. We receive forgiveness from God, and we are reconciled to God. Because we have participated in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are members of God's redeemed family, and we now have the capacity to follow Jesus' Monday Thursday command to love one another. Our love for one another must include our forgiveness of one another. In the family of God, forgiving is not just something we do from time to time, but it should reflect who we are. If we are to take off the old nature with its practices and put on the new nature as Paul commands in Colossians 3, 9, and 10, then we must let the Holy Spirit work in us. Paul continues, The new nature is renewed in knowledge by conforming to the image of the one who created it. In this image, lifelong enemies are reconciled to one another through Christ so that there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all things and in all people, Colossians 3.11. This is a very different picture of forgiveness from that which the world offers. Too often, we define forgiveness as something private that frees us from negative emotions and pain, and it does indeed do that. We say, I forgive you, and we mean, now go away. While this may indeed be the extent of forgiveness for some relationships, when someone continues to sin against you or is too dangerous to be close to, we settle for separation and even alienation far too readily. And we call that forgiving. Can you ever imagine Jesus saying to you, I have died for you. I forgive you. Now go away. On the cross where Jesus died, the love of God is magnified. In the divine demonstration of love, forgiveness reconciles us to God. This is a tall order for person-to-person -person forgiveness. So how do we practice this kind of costly forgiveness when we have been deeply and unjustly wounded by another person? Colossians offers us guidance on how to forgive. First, forgiveness requires a firm foundation. The cross of Christ provides the foundation upon which we stand to offer forgiveness to another person. To paraphrase 1 John 4.10, we forgive because he first forgave us. If we are to forgive one another in the Jesus way, we need to be firmly rooted and established in Christ. Paul writes in Colossians 1:23 and 2:6, "You need to remain well established and rooted in faith and not shift away from the hope given in the good news that you heard. Be rooted and built up in him." 
be established in faith and overflow with thanksgiving just as you were taught. As we are rooted and built up in Christ, forgiveness becomes a way of life, a family characteristic. It's not just something we do when the act is required. Forgiving becomes an aspect of who we are, of virtue, not merely a behavior. We struggle to forgive others when our awareness of the magnitude of God's forgiveness of us begins to fade. The debts that we owe one another begin to pale in comparison to the debt that we owe God as we remember our own forgiveness. We not only need a firm foundation from which to offer forgiveness, we also need a new perspective on the offending event so that we can tell ourselves a different story about what happened other than the one that we have been telling, the story that keeps us chained to unforgiveness. Where does this new perspective come from? Paul directs our gaze to the things that are above, where Christ is seat, sitting at God's right hand, and tells us to think about the things above and not things on earth, from Colossians 3, 1 and 2. How in the world does this help us to find a new perspective on the hurtful event? Does Paul intend for us to be so heavenly-minded that we are no earthly good? Is, this, is his advice a kind of sanctified self-deception where we pretend that we really were not deeply and unjustly injured? Paul means none of these things. We live in the present, the already-but-not-yet life we have received through our being raised with Christ. As we set our minds on things above, we experience a reorientation of our hearts so we can give up self-centered and self-protective practices that nurture alienation and insist, on, and insist that we can, and therefore we can risk putting on practices that nurture forgiveness and reconciliation. For example, in Colossians 3, Paul writes, so put to death the parts of your life that belong to the earth, such as sexual immorality, moral corruption, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. You used to live this way when you were alive to these things. Now, these behaviors represent an unrestrained life that clamors after that which belongs to someone else. Those who do these things leave a trail of broken lives behind them. Notice that Paul notes, you used to live this way when you were alive to these things. We are tempted to pat ourselves on the back saying, well, we certainly are morally superior to those kind of people. Now, it would have been nice if Paul had left it at that. Here the line between good and evil runs clearly between you and me. I am good, you are evil, period. End of sentence. But he doesn't stop there. Instead, he continues to meddle. Instead, he issues an even greater challenge to us. But now, set aside these things, such as anger and wrath, which are an improper indulgence of temper, not a natural expression of indignation, malice, any attitude or action intended to harm another, slander or foul talk, 
words and speech intended to harm another and not heal a relationship, and lying. Speech meant to deceive, that distorts the truth, and breeds mistrust. These behaviors nurture alienation, enmity, and hostility, not forgiveness, reconciliation, and peace. In other words, the line between good and evil does not run between you and me. It runs right down my middle and your middle. I possess the capacity to wound other, another unless I intentionally put off these practices because I am now a member of a new family with new habits and new ways of looking at others, including my offenders. Paul beseeches us, therefore, as God's choice, holy and loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience in Colossians 3.12. These virtues are self-giving, gracious, and humble. They seek the other's good. And before we can say, yes, but you don't understand, Paul continues, be tolerant with each other. And if someone has a complaint against anyone, forgive each other. Here's the kicker. As the Lord forgave you, so also forgive each other. Forgiveness impacts the community. It is not a privatized affair between you and Jesus. How you live in the body affects the whole body. So how can we develop a new perspective on the hurtful event? Let me offer you three options to try on. Linger with the one that allows you to relate to your wrongdoer with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. You might take the challenge to view the offense like a neutral reporter might report the offense without all the emotionality that typically you attach to it. Challenging? Indeed. Maybe more challenging is to view the offense the way the other person might talk about it. What is the other side of the story? Indeed, incredibly hard. And in some situations, neither of those are possible. So in those cases, how might God narrate the story of what happened and who you are and who the other person is? Changing the story is not easy. In fact, it may be the most difficult part of forgiveness. When we are firmly grounded on the finished work of Christ, the power of the cross, the power of the resurrection, and our new life in Christ, if we put off practices that maintain alienation and put on practices that nurture new perspectives because we are members of God's family, then we have the opportunity and privilege to be like Christ and to offer to those who have offended us the gift of forgiveness, perhaps with even the hope of reconciliation. Our forgiveness of another is a reflection of the gracious forgiveness that we have already received from Christ. Miroslav Volf offers this insight from his book, Free of Charge, and I quote, When we forgive, we make God's forgiveness our own. And even as we do, it's Christ who forgives through us, not we who forgive on our own. 
When we forgive, we have an opportunity to live into what God means by being God's image bearers. A step toward forgiveness, however, may take different shapes. Perhaps we want to obey and forgive, but we are too overcome by our woundedness to really have a softer heart. Our gift is one of willingness then. Lord, make me willing to be willing to forgive. Perhaps we understand the rightness of forgiveness, but our heart is still broken. In this case, our step may be one of decision. We make a commitment, a decision, to act toward the other as if we truly feel forgiving towards him or her. Or is it possible that we have gained such a new perspective on the offending event that we now actually experience empathy for the one who hurt us? And we can now offer emotional forgiveness. We can forgive our brother or sister deeply from the heart. Which step represents you today? Is your prayer one of, Lord, make me willing to be willing? Or, Lord, I make a choice to act toward my offender as if I have forgiven him or her from my heart. Or, Lord, I'm experiencing the heart freedom that comes from forgiving, and I can look at my offender with compassion and kindness. Once we have made the step toward forgiveness, how do we hold on to it? Often our forgiveness is fragile. We too often revisit the pain without remembering to reframe it in the light of the resurrection. We fear being hurt again. We argue that it isn't fair that we have to do the work of forgiving. And Paul realizes this too. Colossians 3, 14 to 17 offers us guidance for holding on to forgiveness. And over all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. The peace of Christ must control your hearts, a peace into which you were called in one body, and be thankful people. The word of Christ must live in you richly, teach and warn each other with all wisdom by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Whatever you do, whether in speech or action, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus and give thanks to God the Father through him. First, the peace of Christ must control our hearts. In this verse, control acts like an umpire or referee so that the unity of the body to which we were called is maintained and thanksgiving arises. Next, the word of Christ must live in us richly. And notice that the word of Christ indwells us through corporate worship. Corporate worship is where we have an opportunity to push the reset button and align our minds, hearts, and intents with attitudes consistent with those of being children of God. When the peace of Christ controls our hearts and the words of Christ lives in us richly, we can fulfill Colossians 1.10 and live lives that are worthy of the Lord and pleasing to him by producing fruit and growing in our relationship with God, by being strengthened for endurance and with patience, and by giving thanksgiving with joy. Our forgiveness, however, is not confined to those who offend us within the family of God alone. Through the power of the cross of Christ, we are empowered 
to forgive anyone who has offended us, to forgive even our enemies from whom we are alienated because of their evil actions. And so Paul writes in Colossians 4, 5, and 6, Act wisely towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Your speech should always be gracious and appealing so that you may know how to respond to every person. On this Monday, Thursday, as we anticipate the despair of Good Friday and the resurrection joy of Easter Sunday, consider forgiveness as a way to fulfill the new commandment that Jesus gives on Monday, Thursday. <laughs>